This morning we continue our worship series called Unraveled, where we are listening to stories about how God meets us in the unraveling and the reweaving of our lives. Today we hear a difficult but powerful story from the Hebrew scriptures. It takes place at a time when David was king of the United Monarchy of Israel. It's also a time when violence was used to keep the peace. And in the story that we're going to hear this morning, um, David basically allows an act of violence um, to occur in an effort to preserve his power and his people. His predecessor, King Saul, had entered uh, in a treaty with a group called the Gibeonites and then um, failed to live up to that treaty. And the Gibeonites come seeking revenge and they ask to um, kill seven of the descendants of Saul, which is what uh, David allows. The character that you really want to listen for in this story is Rizpah. Rizpah was one of the wives of Saul, and she is the mother of two of the sons who are killed. As we'll see in the story, it is Rizpah's grief, it is her protest, and it is her persistence that ends up actually changing the heart of David and changing the policies of the state. So let us listen for the word of God. Good morning, everybody. Today's scripture is from the Hebrew Testament, 2 Samuel, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. I'm reading from the Common English Bible. There was a famine for three years in a row during David's rule. David asked the Lord about this, and the Lord said, It is caused by Saul and his household. They are guilty of bloodshed because he killed the people of Gibeon. So the king called for the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites weren't Israelites, but they were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to a solemn pledge to spare them, but Saul tried to eliminate them in his enthusiasm for the people of Israel and Judah. David said to the Gibeonites, What can I do for you? How can I fix matters so that you may bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites said to him, We don't want silver or gold from Saul or his family, and it isn't our right to have anyone killed in Israel. What do you want, David asked. I'll do it for you. Okay, then, they said to the king, that man who opposed and oppressed us, who planned to destroy us, keeping us from a a place to live anywhere in Israel, hand over seven of his sons to us, and we will hang them before the Lord at Gibeon on the Lord's mountain. I will hand them over, the king said. But the king spared Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson, because of the Lord's solemn pledge that was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. So the king took the two sons of Ea's daughter, Rizpah, Armoni, 
and Mephibosheth, whom she birthed for Saul, and the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merab, whom she birthed for Adriel, Brazilia's son, who was from Meholah, and he handed them over to the Gibeonites. They hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. The seven of, the of them died at the same time. They were executed the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Aya's daughter, Rizpah, took sackcloth and spread it out by herself on the rock. She stayed there from the beginning of the harvest until the rains poured down on the bodies from the sky. She wouldn't let any birds of prey land on the bodies during the day, nor let wild animals come at nighttime. When David was told what Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and he retrieved the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the city, citizens of Jebesh and Gilead. They had stolen the bones from the public square in Bethshem, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul and Jeboah. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there and collected the bones of the men that had been hanged by the Gibeonites. The bones of Saul and his son Jonathan were then buried in Zila, Benjamin territory. They were buried in the tomb of Saul's father Kish. Once everything the king had commanded was done, God responded to the prayers for the land. This is the word of God for the people of God. May God bless us with wisdom and generous understanding. Will you join me in prayer? O oh, gracious God, on this day when we wrestle with this difficult story, help us to hear your word in it for us today. Open our eyes to new ways of seeing you, to new ways of seeing ourselves, to new ways of seeing others, and to new ways of being your seekers of justice and peace in our world. Amen. As we begin this morning, I want to invite you first to just look at this picture. This is the June 15th cover of Time magazine. It is by the American artist Titus Kaffar, and it's an oil painting that he did entitled Analogous Colors. And I want to invite you to really look at this portrait. Well, I read the words that Titus Kafar wrote to accompany this painting. He writes, I cannot sell you this painting. In her expression, I see the black mothers who are unseen and rendered helpless in this fury against their babies. As I listlessly wade through another cycle of violence against black people, I paint a black mother, eyes closed, furrowed brow, holding the contour of her loss. Is this what it means for us? Are black and loss analogous colors in America? If Malcolm could not fix it, if Martin could not fix it, 
If Michael, Sandra, Trayvon, Tamir, Brianna, and now George Floyd can be murdered and nothing changes, wouldn't it be foolish to remain hopeful? Must I accept that this is what it means to be black in America? Do not ask me to be hopeful. I have given up trying to describe the feeling of knowing that I cannot be safe in the country of my birth. How do I explain to my children that the very system set up to protect others could be a threat to our existence? How do I shield them from the psychological impact of knowing that for the rest of our lives we will likely be seen as a threat, and for that we may die? A MacArthur won't protect you. A Yale degree won't protect you. Your well-spoken plea will not change hundreds of years of institutionalized hate. You will never be as eloquent as Baldwin. You will never be as kind as King. So, isn't it only reasonable to believe that there will be no change soon? And so those without hope burn. This black mother understands the fire. Black mothers understand despair. I can change nothing in this world, but in paint, I can realize her. This brings me solace, not hope, but solace. She walks me through the flames of rage. My black mother rescues me yet again. I wanna be sure that she is seen. I wanna be certain that her story is told. And so this time, America must hear her voice. This time, America must believe her. One black mother's loss will be memorialized. This time, I will not let her go. I cannot sell you this painting. Friends, this is a modern day Rizpah. A woman grieving, pained beyond expression for the loss of her child, pained by a culture where the bodies of her children and those who look like them are considered expendable, pained by a world where the powers that be seem to do nothing. Today's scripture and today's world have all too much in common. Different millennia, but in many ways it is the same story. In Rizpah's time, the state, the state of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, it relied on violence for peace, for military campaigns, for control. And in our story this morning, we hear King David sanctioning the killing of seven innocent men. As the story goes, there's the famine in the land. David goes to inquire God why there's a famine, and God replies that it's because Saul, David's predecessor, has wronged the Gibeonites with whom they shared a treaty. And so David goes to the Gibeonites. He basically asks, uh, what can he do to make it right? Which is really the way that he asks, what can I do to protect my land, my power, my kingdom, my blessing? And basically what they ask for is retributive justice for a public execution, a ritual execution. And this is what David grants, a public display of violence and killing. And it's a brutal killing at that. You heard it read as these seven innocent children and grandchildren of Saul are hung, they're lynched, and then they're left to decompose, to serve as a warning sign to others. Humiliation on top of violence. 
This is a horrific story to read in our own scripture. But it's horrific to also recognize that it is happening in our world now. We continue to have state-sanctioned violence in our own nation. And those names all around Titus Kafar's painting, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Laquan McDonald, Sandra Bland, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. They are all victims of modern day lynchings in a system, a cultural system, a law enforcement system, a governmental system that endorses such behavior. If we dig underneath, we know that this violence and this indifference is due in a large part to the white supremacy that has undergirded our nation from the very beginning. White supremacy, just to define our terms, is that belief system, albeit a false one, that whites are superior and all other races are inferior, and that therefore whites have uh, reason to control or to dominate all other races. It also lends to the belief system that uh, whites are better, holy, good, innocent, special, unique, and non-whites are not. This false belief has underpinned and enabled everything from chattel slavery to Jim Crow laws, to mass incarceration, to economic inequality, to the violent killing of black and brown siblings across our country. It's a nation where we are still living out the legacy of slavery. We're still living out that original sin of white supremacy, which is transmitted to the next generation and the next generation through racism and discrimination and brutality and violence. And because this ideology is so powerful, it has meant that the state and those complicit with the state, which really means a lot of white people, even lovely, liberal, progressive white people have been more like King David and turned a blind eye to the violence in our world. Enter Rizpa. Rizpa, the mom of two boys brutally killed. Rizpa, the concubine of the now deceased Paul, who had no rights even to her own body. Rizpa, who for all intents and purposes was powerless against the power of the state. Rizpa, whose grief and whose anger drives her to take action. When she witnesses what is done to her sons, this mom, this grieving mom, she throws on sackcloth, which is a sign of mourning, and she marches up the hill to where their bodies hang and she sets up a tent and begins to camp out. It is a one-woman protest of grief and of anger where she tries to do in her children's death what she could not do in their life, which is protect them from predators. In her book, Womanist Midrash, the theologian Will Gaffney paints this vivid picture. She writes, Wizpa, Rizpah, quote, watches the corpses of her sons stiffen 
soften, swell, and sink into the stench of decay. Fights with winged, clawed, tooth scavengers night and day. She is there from spring harvest until the fall rains as many as six months, sleeping, eating, toileting, protecting, and bearing witness. In her grief and in her rage, she puts her body on the line. She stands vigil, she protests, she says no more, and in her actions, she cries out for justice and peace. As the scripture records, she is all alone. How exhausting this must have been. How many days must she have wondered, does anyone care? I wonder how many of our black and brown siblings in particular feel that way now, have felt that way for years, for centuries. Well, we know Rizpah was not alone. For one, God was with her, meeting her in that time of deep pain and vulnerability and grief and giving her that courage and that persistence to keep on day after day to try to preserve the dignity of her sons. And eventually, people did take notice. There were witnesses. Someone told someone who told someone. And eventually, word got to King David who learned what she was doing. And whatever he heard, it motivates him to change. It motivates him to realize that what he saw as expendable actually deserved honor. And so he goes and he gets the bones of the seven men and he gets the bones of Saul and Jonathan and he gives them a proper burial. And it's only then, only when those men are given that proper burial, only when they are recognized as equal and deserving of care, that it says God answers the prayers and heals the land. As a society, for too long, we have ignored the Rizpahs. We have turn deaf ears to the cries, blind eyes to the sight. But we cannot ignore, we cannot ignore them any longer. There is not one Rizpah, there are hundreds, there are thousands calling out for justice. And it seems that maybe at last our society, our leaders, white people in general, are taking notice. As people of faith, and especially those who are white people of faith, the story teaches us. It teaches us to pay attention to the Rizpahs of our day, to support the Rizpahs of our day, and to be the Rizpahs of the day. On the one hand, we are called to really listen and see the grief and the anger of those who have lost loved ones to violence and oppression and white supremacy. And on the other hand, we are to let our own grief and anger motivate us to do something.
motivate us to stand up to the violence of our nation and our state, to seek to better understand and then dismantle white supremacy that has allowed it to happen. And for those of us who are white and who have power in the white supremacist system, it is our job, the onus is on us to dismantle it. So what does this look like in a task and a time that feels overwhelming? Well, I think it looks like a lot of things. It looks like repentance. It looks like admitting our own sin and complicity with white supremacy. It's prayer and lament. It looks like joining in solidarity with our black and brown siblings, listening to their experiences, their voices, their grief, their wisdom. It looks like showing up at protests and putting our bodies on the line like Rizpah did to protect others. It looks like doing the uncomfortable and hard work of understanding and exploring and addressing our biases, our white supremacist attitudes, which those of us who are white all have, whether we think we don't, we do. It means giving money to support black organizations, black businesses, black people, so that we can begin to right some of the generational wrong of economic inequality. It means calling out to defund the police, which as I learned this week, doesn't mean to not support the, the police force, but what it means is to stop asking our police to also be mental health counselors and social workers and domestic dispute mediators and school resource officers, but to allocate resources to, to other organizations who are better equipped for those things. It means voting and calling up our representatives and legislators. And it means being open to change our minds and our hearts and our policies and our laws so that we can build up the kind of nation that we have always aspired to be and yet have not yet become the kind of nation where all people are created and treated equally. Most of all, what it means is listening for and standing with and standing up as the Rizpas of our day. Friends, there is much work to be done, but God is in this work with us. And God calls us to join the side of the Rizpas and the vulnerable and the side of justice. As someone pointed out in Bible study this week, our story could have ended just with the killing of the sons, violence done, justice rendered, but it didn't. The story continued because of Rizpah. So few women are recorded in the Hebrew scriptures, but Rizpah's story is preserved because it was her protest and her persistence and her courage that went on to change the heart of a king and change the policies of a state. So may we remember her story 
May we remember that it was because of her activism that brought healing to the land. May God give us the courage to stand in solidarity with the Rizpahs of our day. And may we seek to be the ones who cry out and who persist and who stand up in violence to violence and white supremacy of our day so that God will bring healing to our land too. Amen.